Hey everybody, welcome back to the TeamCast. I'm Coleman Ruiz, the Director of Performance at the Mission Critical Team Institute. And the TeamCast is a show where Dr. Preston Klein and I and our guests discuss all things mission critical teams. MCTs are teams of four to 12 people, indigenously trained, that solve rapidly emergent, complex, adaptive problem sets, and who work in immersive environments of 300 seconds or less, where the consequence of failure is death or catastrophic loss. However narrow the definition of mission critical teams, and whether you're on one or not, we aim to bring you the broadest range of topics and guests as possible. Thanks for being here, and once again, enjoy the TeamCast. Today I speak with Trey Free. Trey spent some time in the U.S. Marine Corps and then transitioned to the Air Force Special Operations Community in the late 90s and became a combat controller and joint tactical air controller. Trey's a guy I consider a selection, assessment, and training expert. He's a huge part of the Mission Critical Teams Institute community. He's a dad and a husband. And in 2017, over 113 days solo through hiked the Appalachian Trail. One disclaimer here up front before we start the conversation. All of Trey's thoughts in this discussion are solely his thoughts. They're not the thoughts of the organization uh, with whom he works currently as a civilian contractor. In the discussion today, we talk about, of course, selection and training. We talk about training for chess players rather than people who play checkers. We talk about building to the race car we need today rather than fighting our last fight. We discuss when Trey realized he needed to change his thinking around professional development and how to effectively select and train tier one operators. We discuss how challenging it is when we go from operator to instructor and we're trying to push the envelope of training, push the envelope of progression. But the only image of training that we have is when we went through it. And the only experience we have is our own. And we measure everything against what we experienced versus sometimes versus where we're trying to go. Trey talks about moving away from training on tactics and skills, but selecting and training to characteristics such as communication, drive, stress tolerance, interpersonal effectiveness, and becoming a problem solver. We discuss why training is for certainty and education is for uncertainty. Trey talks about his 15 categories of controllables to maintain your mental toughness. We discuss peak performance and getting over perceived failures. Trey talks about quitting as a mindset rather than a decision. We talk about residue and Trey's transition from the military. We, of course, discuss his solo through hike of the AT, why he did it, what he learned about himself, how difficult it was, the snow and the White Mountains, and how he ended up being the 12th person to summit Mount Katahdin that year in 2017. At the end of the conversation, Trey refers to something very quickly as the third thing what he's talking about is many of us who transition out of special operations into the private sector, we don't really have any hobbies. We don't have a quote unquote third thing that we do. We work, we work out, 
We come home, try to do the best we can with our families. We sleep and we get back to work the next day. Trey discusses that third thing. The only other administrative note before we get to the conversation is early uh, as we're getting started, you might hear me say a sentence, we'll keep this classified. I meant to say we'll keep this unclassified because Trey and I were intentional about keeping the conversation on the unclassified level. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Trey Free, who you can find on YouTube as Early Riser 71. First of all, trades, obviously, it's great to have you here. Of all the people, and this is actually what I want you to speak about first, is the Mission Critical Teams community in general. When you first got introduced to Preston or the community as a group, how long you've been at every summit that I've been at. But I say that as a, as a preface to, to tell the audience that of all the presentations and the, and the classes and the segments that we teach through MCTI and the summits that we do at MCTI. Everybody kind of wants to always have something important to say. And whenever Preston or I say something and then Trey stands up, I get nervous because, because you have so much experience. And I mean that just with the normal respect we have for everybody, everybody in the community, not to like pump up the podcast, but because you've spent so much time with your own career and then you stayed in the community through training, it's really, it's really awesome to hear you interact because you haven't really lost the thread of where the community has grown into. And that's why I wanted to ask you first about where in your career were you? And we can fill in the blanks in a minute when you first got introduced to this community, to MCTI. Yeah, so I was a civilian already. I was about three or four years into my retirement and a civilian working inside our, what is now Debt One, which is we run all selection and training for the organization. Preston had reached out to our commander at the Debt at the time, and, you know, he's doing his research still. So, again, it's about 2013. So he was wondering what our attributes were. So we started building a relationship through there. Our commander sent that email out to us and said, hey, here's this guy. I'm starting to connect with him. So I instantly got interested. Uh, he invite, Preston invited us to, we were in New York that year, that summer. So we came to the first MCT summit there, blown away, blown away by the people who were sitting in that room uh, when we started having these conversations. And they were kind of small back then. I, I was thinking about this today. If you walk in that room and you aren't expecting uh, what is inside that room, you will be absolutely floored <laughs> with who's sitting at your table. You only have seven or eight people sitting at your table, and you'll have somebody from NASA, FBI, uh, Wildland Fire, uh, NY uh, Fire Department. It's just unbelievable, this community and what it is built into and how it's pushed my thinking forward, which my organization has exponentially benefited from this relationship as well. So I'll stop there, but um, just what what you guys are doing is just amazing for this community. That's obviously a setup trade. That's my public service <laughs> sales announcement. But I do remember that New York summit. It was the first time I met you, and it was the first summit that I had attended. I had just gotten out, and I felt the same way. In fact, I know this happens a lot. And when people are new to the summits, we remember to tell them this now. I don't know if we ever mentioned this to each other back then, but you give them a little bit of a heads up. Like, you can't come there and – you're naturally going to have a little imposter syndrome and you're going to be a little nervous, 
but you really want to try to bring your A game and be open because that's why people at that table are the director of flight ops from NASA, the head of training at wherever. You know, it's just ridiculous. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's the key. I'm a gigantic introvert, as you may know, and I know Preston <laughs> knows, but you cannot pass up the opportunity in that room. If you can tie something together, especially from like the operator side, because there's a lot of operators sitting in that room. I like to hear what y'all talk about and what somebody else will stand up and say, and then just relate that, how that applies to our medium inside the operator world. It's just, just fabulous. Yeah. So Trey, let's back up a second and for the non-MCT listeners of the TeamCast, just talk about where you started, Marine Corps, Air Force, training, and now you're obviously a civilian, but give give folks a sense of what level of special operations you're working in so we can move, you know, move forward effectively here. Yep, so joined the Marine Corps in 1989. I just came out with a book that describes this process. Was not thinking about coming into special operations at all happened to get thrown into a reconnaissance assessment um, almost against my will, <laughs> made it made it the next morning, actually, when they came out and spent my four years in reconnaissance inside the Marine Corps. Got out in 93, got to go to Desert Storm during that time. Didn't get to do a lot, but man, what an experience for a 19-year-old. Got out in 93, stayed a civilian for a year, realized this is not, um, not the life for me. So the Air Force had been looking for retired or retired, um, recon Marines who already had jump and dive yep. to come in and become combat controllers. So I jumped at the chance. Hotels and rental cars is what I said after that, because it's just such a better life. That's such a different life than a Marine Corps. Yeah. Went through the pipeline, CCT, got up to my first base after two years, which was at McCord Air Force Base up in Washington. And we weren't doing a lot. This is pre 9-11. This is 95, okay. I think. And I was just looking around. I loved it, but like this cannot be the end. Like yeah. there has to be something else out there. So the two four STS at the time were having tryouts, and I said, uh, you know, somebody said if you want something, if you don't do something real, this is where you go. I'm all in. So let's go try it. Made the assessment there, and uh, got up there in '97. Spent 11 years inside that environment at the unit. Um, got there as a senior airman, which is an E4 in the Air Force. I left as an E8. Mm -hmm. uh, did. About five or six years as a tactical operator. Then I moved over to our training detachment. At the time, we were just uh, called OTC. We ran all the selection and training for all the operators coming into the organization. So I think that's where my shift in thinking started, even though I'm sure we'll talk about it, but I couldn't see outside of the fishbowl at the time. So really, I was just repeating what everybody had done before <laughs> me. So I was I was exploring new things a little bit, but probably not as much as I could have with some good mentoring. Yeah. So I, I ran, I was a cadre member for two years, and then I moved up into the superintendent position of OTC for my last year. Left there in like 06 or 07. Okay. I moved up. I took over a team as a, a team chief for about a year, and then they sucked me up into ops to be an ops superintendent. That about killed me. So Coleman, I needed a break after 11 years, you know, 9-11 had kicked off during that time. And just like everybody else, I was getting crushed. Uh, family was getting crushed. So the opportunity I went and took over or took a position as an instructor at the Air Force Senior NCO Academy. Okay. So something completely different than yeah. what I was doing. But I look so forward to it because the schedule, you got a year out. So we could pl actually plan a vacation. The pager wasn't going to go off and I was going to have to blow out. Yeah. It was amazing. And I'll tell you what it did for me more than anything. It started opening my curiosity and my awareness to 
man, I'm really rigid in my thinking mm -hmm. and there's other ways to solve some problems. So to me, it was just a great way to end the career. And then luckily this job opened up as a civilian. So I came back in 2010 to take over my current position, which is just the GS civilian who um, is now running everything operator recruiting and selection for our organization. Yeah, What can you say, Trey, for the non-listeners, just to add a little detail to what used to be the 24th out of the 724, so folks know what level you're training at. I don't want to say it for you. I want to make sure I'm sticking with, yeah. you know, what's allowed. Yeah, I'm good because I still work there. So I got to be careful too, um, as you know. But yeah, so it is when you when you think about it, it's the difference between college football um, out at the organization I came from. Really good, doing really good things. But it was kind of the collegiate level, moving up into the pro level to where there's more training required, even though you're really good at what you do out at those other units. Uh, it takes about eight more uh, months of training after another selection process, by the way, eight more months of training to get you ready for what you're going to do with those organizations. So I try to relay it in that manner to make it make sense for people, especially at the MCT conferences, uh, so they can understand the differences. Yeah, we'll stay classified here. We'll move off of that specific topic. But it's funny you mentioned this two times, Trey, with you notice when you went to OTC that you had you were kind of repeating what everyone had done before is what you said. And then you mentioned going to uh, instruct at the NCO Academy. And you said you realized you were rigid in your thinking. After I left SEAL Team 3, I went to graduate school. I came back down to run first phase where we do Hell Week, as you know. And then later, when I was at our Tier 1 unit, I was at OIC for Green Team for a year. And I had the same realizations, Trey. And I often ask myself, is what I'm seeing adjustments that I feel like we should make to our training? Is that me just getting lazy and soft? Or do I really feel like we need adjustments to our training? And I just, I'm very careful to be very honest about that because I didn't sit down and think like, hmm, that doesn't look exactly right or so effective. But I didn't really know why I was feeling that way. So anyway, what I wanted to ask you about was looking back when you started to feel that rigidity in your own thinking and maybe, you know, seeing that we're, you were just repeating what everybody else had done. What were some of the things in your guys training that jumped out at you that you were just like, that just doesn't seem right. Like we can do better than this. Such a good question. I love the way you framed it. And um, as I move into that answer, I just want to say I had those same feelings. And I think I think a lot of guys who just, they want to make the process better when they step into one of those roles, whether you're a cadre or whether you're running it, uh, you just want to come in and make a difference. But let's balance that against how do you know? Uh, because your experience is when you went through OTC right. or selection. That's the experience you have. So how can you break out of that? And it's really hard. It's hard because the culture there is kind of holding you in. Uh, let's just say that Coleman wanted to make some big changes. Man, there is a huge culture where you are at, too, that's going to push back against your attempts with everything they have but if it doesn't feel right to them. So that was the challenge um, for me later on. But as I stepped into that role, uh, just the way we were kind of treating guys, we kept saying we want them to be the best when they left the process, but yet we kept creating these weird keep them scared, keep them stressed all the time environments <laughs> to where are we really training them or are we just trying to test their stress tolerance every single day out of this eight months? And Preston says this so well in his classes of, yeah, stress tolerance is a thing and you need to train it, 
but you have to be really disciplined about how you get at it. And we weren't disciplined. We were just doing what was done to us and thinking we were achieving some good things. Luckily, Coleman, we hired a lot of good people. Like they're already beret wearers when they come to us. Mm-hmm. So I think we got lucky because they were already good people when we brought them in. So a lot of them just sustained for eight months and like, all right, we just got to make it through this, which is not what you want to hear when you're trying to field your best team. You don't want guys just trying to make it through it. You want guys who can push the limits. Yeah. And your your cadre are sitting there saying, that was freaking awesome. Let's just tweak one little thing, but keep building on these things you're doing good and let's go do it again. But for us, it's the guy sitting in the rafters with a horn just waiting for you to screw up and blast the horn in front of everybody, pull them out and just tell them you're screwed up. If you don't fix it this time, you're probably out of here. Yeah. And I couldn't see it then, but like you, I had that little thing in the back of my head, those spidey senses saying, this doesn't feel too right, but I don't know what else to do. I didn't have any other tools to pull out. Yeah. So what I think y'all are providing the community right now, you're going around and like Preston comes up and he gives our guys some tools. And if, if they use it or not, that's their choice. But now the thought is at least implanted in their brains to where hopefully they can see what's going on and not just be in the fishbowl like I was. Yeah. So let me press a point here and just give me your your professional opinion and personal opinion on this too, Trey. Because I will admit, I've been out nine years now. All the teams that I've been involved with, just in life too, my time in the SEAL teams, business teams, professional athletic teams, the whole MCTI community, you name it. I still find myself, and I know it's from heavily from my background, is pulled between two tensions when I was involved in interviews at the NFL Combine, whether I'm chatting with you, Trey, whether we're doing a course, it doesn't matter. Our high-end, high-performance assessment and selection programs, are they for assessment, selection, and training, or are they to select people out? And you know exactly the argument I'm talking about because it's like splitting hairs at different points. But I just wanted to get you to riff on that a little bit. So I'm always, man, when we're talking about this, especially when we're around pressing and stuff, he's y'all, you guys are in this weird in-between stage too, because some of the people that you talk to, if, if you're talking about buds, which is where you were, they do things a certain way. You, you know, we us, select people out. Yeah, absolutely. If For the most to, part. If you come up to us, we're a little bit different. And the problem, the problem with that conversion a lot of times is we we bring guys in for our assessment and selection. And then once we say yes, then they PCS to our organization. And now that's behind. Like we already saw the attributes in you, those positive things that we think we can build upon. You're moving now on. Yep. Let's set that aside. And it now hopefully frees the cadre up to say, okay, my task isn't to select. We're still going to hold people accountable to some standards, man. That's never going to go away in our community. It, it happens on the teams beyond OTC. But it frees them up to now say, okay, now I can kind of invest in these dudes. It isn't me being a gatekeeper. It's me being the guy beside them saying, man, awesome job. Like you doing some really good things. Let's tweak this one. Maybe it's your footwork in the house. Let's just tweak how you're entering the room. Um, you keep front side post, front side press, and, and put, keep putting shots on target, and we're going to win. So I think that's the – the difference that we see out there. And it's it's like I emailed you guys not long ago is just it's when the cadre are in that liminal zone between I'm still a selection person and a trainer. Yeah. You can't win as a guy going through that process. You can't win because it's really just fear-based stuff. It's just and looking to cut people. That's it. I can't get yeah. I can't get to my best version if all I'm worried about is you cutting me tomorrow. Yeah. And again, I keep 
you know, the pushback that we get, Coleman, is, but there's got to be standards. And I'm never going to argue against standards. But if you want a guy to be able to run through a CQB house, or if you want a guy to be the best at Jay Tackery, uh, you got to let, you got to give them an environment where they can push the boundaries, run fast, and then um, later on, we can test those standards. But up front, man, you can't have the horn in their ear every second because every time now they do something, they're they're scared that horn's coming out. You can't you can't train that way. You know you know how I learned that from Trey was late, late, late when I was already at Damn Neck. I had already been OIC a green team. It was when I was still you know I was actually close to getting out. And, and have worked with these guys since with uh, some guys in the high performance world involved, used to be involved at Red Bull and these big wave surfers and these BMX guys. And, you know, and they don't get around each other. And like a guy tries a big trick and he crashes and then they're like, get the fuck out of here. You suck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's not exactly. how they do it. You know, they sit on the boat. We were out in Maui twice last year. With Kai Lenny, Ian Walsh, and these guys surfing out at Piahi, out at Jaws. I wasn't surfing. They were. <laughs> but they sit on the boat. And, yes, these guys are at the top level already. But even the younger guys who are out there surfing with them, they don't beat them up when they don't succeed. They don't tell them, you're never going to be able to surf Jaws. You suck. And I thought that was fascinating. And it's kind of, like, obvious now that we say it. But honestly, when I was in training, Trey, that wasn't obvious to me. Like I had been conditioned that this is the pipeline. If you can't do X, Y, and Z, you get the fuck out. Yeah, absolutely. If you look at any good, and this is why I like talking to Sean Holes, who's also been around the community and out in the professional world. So anytime I can get around him, I ask him about a million questions. But and if you look at how the pros do it in sports, uh, it isn't just this berate session all day and the guys are scared. This guy's actually sitting there coaching and watch a rep and give them, all right, man, you're doing this good. Just tweak this a little bit. Let's do it again and throw them the ball back and let's do it again. And it, we should be able to see through that. But again, it's that culture aspect of that's how it was when I came through. And if this goes away or if we change it, and this is, I'm always trying to process this, Coleman, and I never think that I say this effectively, but if you change even your selection process, our process has changed. So all the older operators who are there, there's this weird transition point of, well, this isn't what I went through, and what I went through chose me. So does this process mean I'm no longer good enough, or it's, those, it's that weird dichotomy? And that isn't that isn't the question. The question is, how can we keep using science and experience to push our ways of hiring people forward to where we're getting people who we can bring in and be open-minded and be problem-focused and, you know, get along with people better? Because that's hugely important for us because we're going to go work with guys at the Navy and the Army. They have to be able to walk in a room and uh, instantly get along with them and, and be effective. So that's another huge thing that we focus on as well. Yeah, I don't know the right tempo of like this next exercise. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna riff on here for a second, Trey, and get your thoughts. I don't know if it's something in training we should do once a year, if it's something we should do uh, once every five years. But the one thing that I think would really benefit us all, and frankly, your guys' organization, I think, because we hear it through you, has done this really well, is periodically. Because the mission changes, the places we go change. It doesn't change completely, but you know what I mean. Is what does the race car need to do? Like, not, oh, this is how I was trained. Then we're fighting the last war and we're yeah. building the last person. 
right? Yeah. What does the race car need to do? And and backwards plan, assessment, selection, training, approach, periodicity, performance, all the things Sean talked about in the last con- backwards plan from what the race car needs to look like, not from this is how we used to train in Vietnam. Absolutely. And as things are morphing, even right now, and our focuses change on what we're focused on around the world, that race car's changing a little bit. What it needs is changing a little bit. We have to be in a constant conversation of, are we still doing what matches the needs of the organization? And by that, I mean, you know, we usually fight the last war and, and a lot of guys are saying we need to bring in guys who are experienced. Man, that that isn't the same word as it used to be seven years ago when dudes had seven eight rotations. What? Yes, exactly. Like guys are even if they get a rotation now, they're not doing anything. So you have to quit using that as a measure and go back to the attributes that we care about and say, do they have positive levels of these? Excuse me, attributes that we can build on when they get here. And you know, your training cycle has to look different. Like we're going to have to do a little bit more with these guys. Which is also a good thing. Like a lot of guys used to come in very rigid and structured because they had a lot of experience, but maybe they weren't doing things the way we need them to do because it's a little bit different of an environment. We do it a little bit differently. And it was hard for them to reverse learn out of those processes they had and into the ones we needed. So to me, I I like younger, I won't say less experienced guys, but I like bringing in guys who are hungry, who don't have a lot of baggage coming with them. Man, give me those guys to coach because if they're hungry and they'll wake up every day and just come in there and get at it, you can turn those dudes into some superstars. Yeah, I mean, if you, if we think about, Trey, like that idea, again, going back to this, the way we used to always do it or the race cars, all, all you have to do is slow yourself down for a second and look back at yourself in your own OTC or green team or whatever experience. And if I think about my own experience, there were many, many moments where I felt like I was on the razor's edge of being cut. But the feeling in my mind was, wait, 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 wait. Just give me one second. Like, I will figure this out. But we sometimes build our training on the razor's edge all the time versus the times it only needs to be on the razor's edge. You know, there are moments and training events and and segments of training where it should be, in Coleman's opinion, it should be see one, do one, or get out. Like there's segments you need to have like that, but yeah, I think there's just many more times when we can build a little larger left and right boundary and and train each other through stuff versus just, you know, cutting us based on what we remember our last experience to be. Yeah. Our sports psychologist, Ben, is doing some amazing work too. So he's in, he worked with a cadre all the way through OTC as well as the guys going through OTC. So he's helping the cadre get a little more effective with their interactions. He's watching it. He's giving some tips and he's also helping the OTC guys out too. But I think one positive thing we've done over the past few years, one cadre member will mentor one team. And so if if we bring the right guys in, after a stressful day of training, he's that guy. They can go outside of the shoot house and go talk to that guy and have a normal conversation. It isn't, hey, let's all the cadre will now get into a circle and we'll be there'll be this big yeah. chasm in between us and the, the students. And if we can get away from that model and get into a model to where the guys are involved with the guys that they're teaching and coaching and mentoring, we win because then the guys can ask those questions that are just haunting them. Or like you said, just give me another second, man. I think I can figure this out. 
Now they get to go talk to somebody and say, hey, this is what I'm wondering. Like, I think I'm on the edge, but something's holding me back. And then have a conversation with a guy who's very experienced and can help out. And if he can't get them there, pass them over to Ben, our sports psychologist, and let him work him through some things. So there's a whole lot of tools that we have that I hope people are applying, but sometimes I just don't feel like they know to, or if they release that guy to somebody else, they feel like they're felon and that's a hit to their ego. Uh, If you look at how we train our free fall stuff, I used to be in AFFI, um, and you know where we used to go jump. And when I had a student, if I couldn't get him over a hurdle, Coleman, it was all I could do for my ego to say, (laughs) all right, man, I'm going to take you over here to this other guy. Maybe he can sort you out. Oh, Lord, I couldn't do it. I wanted to be the one to sort him out. And I just started making things worse. I was telling him the wrong things to do. We just have to get over that and see the bigger picture of, if I want this guy to be the best on Sunday, I've got to give him whatever he needs to be that best guy. Anything. Yeah. Anything. Just be all in and we win. Yeah. No, it's a, it's, a, it's a great, great point. So I want to talk about your guys' characteristics specifically, Trey, at 724. But a couple, let's get to those in a second. When it comes to training folks at the highest levels of special operations, and obviously you can just think about your own community, there's a good friend of mine who was a world-class concert cellist player. And I was at this forum at this thing one day, and there was a world-class concert cellist in the room. There was some world-class business leaders. There was a buddy of mine who was actually in ranger school in the 70s with General John Vines. And he <laughs> spent a short time in the rangers and then became a professional climber. His name is Arno Ilgner. Wow. And in that room, all these folks gave a short presentation, and they talked about what made world-class performers and I want to ask you about something that you mentioned on the Ones Ready podcast that you did with your guys there. Every single one of those people, Trey, and including Sean Holes and every other person I know at the highest levels of their own profession, say the number one thing you need to do is be good at the basics. And I think one of the biggest misnomers in mission critical teams, because we have fancy titles, right? Tier 1 Special Operations, NASA, FBI, HRT, blah, blah, blah. It all sounds sexy, and you talk to a sniper in FBI, you talk to Trey Free, you talk to Preston Klein, you talk to Holly Ridings, they all say, what we really need is people to be great at the basics. Talk about what, how you've seen that manifest, you know, in your own career, too. Yeah, so and when we try to separate ourselves, because when I go out and recruit, just to, to solidify this point a little bit, when we go out and recruit, the guys, we, we're looking at controllers and PJs out there, and they're like, well, what makes you guys different? What's the difference? What I try to tell them is our guys are so good at the basics and OTC gets them that way. Our guys are so good that they can do their job. If you're a PJ and a mass cow just happens, that guy can treat two or three guys, triage them all appropriately and still have bandwidth left to solve something else for the ground force commander. Maybe a time distance problem or who's going where and I still need this other helo to go do this. That's what level that we have to get to by the time they leave OTC. So, and if you look at the JTAC perspective, that dude's got 15 aircraft overhead. He's solving problems for the ground force commander, but he's also having to make sure that he's not dropping bombs on the hundred dudes that are on the ground running everywhere on target. So it's getting so good and pushing it down to that system one, if you will, to where they're not having to really think through it as much. They're just executing and executing correctly and then still solving problems. Like That's the people we have to bring in an organization. And that's why we care about our attributes, because we think those attributes after RAND, they're, they're completing their study now, which I love working with them. 
they're pointing us the right direction. We bring in people with those attributes, positive levels of those attributes, and we're at least handing the cadre people that have the ability to stack on top of a good foundation. Yeah, it's just like Sean uh, spoke about in the team cast a couple of weeks ago, Trey, doing things slowly, correctly, then at speed, yeah. then at speed with fatigue, then Love under that. pressure and consistently. And we all work together at various different times. The JTAC I worked most closely with when I was in troop command, the dude epitomized what you just described, Trey. He had eight to 10 aircraft on the net at any one time, stacked up all over the place, firefights going on on the ground, calling in fire, pushing people off for fuel, calling in Kazovac, calling in lift. And he had tons of bandwidth to solve other problems because he did the basics exceptionally well. We all make some mistakes in multiple combat deployments with this particular controller. I can count on less than three fingers, like how many mistakes he made in the field. Yeah, that's good to hear, man. It gets me excited to hear you say because it, it takes me back. But it points to our attributes again. Like those guys are under immense pressure and stress and everything else. So we'll talk about something too that we're doing with peak performance here in a minute. But it's those guys who can just really focus in the moment and not have a bunch of variables weighing on them on the outside can think clearly. And again, they're so good at the basics that they can add value on target besides just what they're there to do. Yeah. But I can help you solve other things that you need solved too. Oh, it was unbelievable. And, and you know how troop commanders are like, we just want an answer yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. And you, <laughs> Y'all say, go ahead. All right, uh, go ahead and strike. And then y'all look at the target like the bomb's going to instantly hit the Pretty target. I used to, it's hilarious, <laughs> man. That guy's having a balance, like informing you, but also getting the aircraft to say, hey, you might want to hurry up a little bit, man. We need some effects here soon. But it's a, it's a, it's one of the funnest jobs I've ever done. But it's why we got to hire some chess players and not checker players because there's so many, you know, the enemy gets the vote. We've been saying that for years. And when they start moving, it's those complex adaptive problems. When they start moving, i got to be one step ahead of them and realize yeah. what effects that has so I can uh, bring different effects um, no to win the battle. So, Trey, let's let's go back to your guys' assessment and selection, which I know, again, for the audience, people will find fascinating. That I've heard you talk before that, and you just correct me if any of this is wrong, you moved away a little bit from assessing and selecting for skill and towards characteristics. So just take a minute to talk about the characteristics, what they are, and we can just, we can pressure them a little bit here. Yep. So we, after Rand did their study, we necked it down to five that we really care about and we really focus on. So their communication, their drive, stress tolerance, problem solving, and interpersonal effectiveness. And that's it. Guys will come up for about 10 days and we focus solely on creating an environment to where we can engender those behaviors and make a decision on Who's who has some potential with a little bit of risk and then whose risk levels getting up there to where we might need to, them to go back out and come back in another year before we're willing to bring that up. It's a beautiful thing that our command gets to do, right? Like you guys do oh, it. Sure. Uh, that we get to hand select people to come in. So really having a roadmap of, of what you're looking for is important. And then measuring did that play out in reality on OTC and when they got to the teams. Now, for those characteristics specifically, Trey, so let me just talk for a second here to the general audience. There's most special operations units, if you're not from our you know, military community, you're going to go through, whether you're in the Air Force, the Marine Corps, the Navy, the Army, you're going to go through some initial special operations training, SEALs, controller, JTAC, 
Ranger School, Q course, Basic Recon course, blah, blah, blah. There's all the basic courses. Then you're going to spend some time operating and, and going overseas and deploying. And then you're going to have a chance to raise your hand and go to a tier one unit, which is typically somewhere between, let's just call it, Five and six years, you already have experience up to maybe 10 or 12 years before you go to this tier one selection. And in that selection process, you're going to be pressure tested in a way. And then you're going to be kind of like marked as trainable. And then you go into a call it eight to 12 month advanced training process before you ever show up at your unit. So what I wanted you to describe, Trey, for the for the audience is that trades at the tier one advanced training level, you have these five characteristics. When you're a set, I want the audience to get a sense of like, how long do you take to decide, okay, how long in like weeks or months does the assessment and selection go? Do you decide, okay, this person meets our standards for problem solver, drive, stress tolerance, interpersonal effectiveness, and communication? They get a gold star, okay, you can now go into the training. How long right. is that selection? So let me preface this by saying that, again, we get to bring guys who are already vetted, um, kind of like you okay. guys do too, yeah. right? You've yeah. they've already been operating at a level. So it allows us to condense it a whole lot, in my opinion. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. If back in, if you let me loose and back in 2003, this would have been like a month and a half long, right? Because yeah. um, I was focused on a lot of the wrong things. But now that I... A little bit wider. Well, Trey, and sorry I to cut you off. If you, leave, if you cut us loose, we would run hell month instead of hell week <laughs> yeah, because exactly. hell week's not enough. So That's exactly ahead. right. So as we look at this, and it is altered, like um, I had the what I call the Great Awakening in about 2012 <laughs> where we were still doing a lot of skills-based <laughs> stuff. We started moving away from that. We're really, the guys come up and we just... Let me put it this way. If you're one of the operators that come up through our selection now, at the end of it, you look back and be like, that was probably the most difficult thing I've ever done, but not because they had me doing medical stuff and Jay Tackery stuff. It's because right. they had me doing stuff that made me uncomfortable, and I had to figure it out in this very dynamic and fluid world, and I never knew if I had the right answer or not. What we want to see is in that environment, do you keep pushing forward? Can you keep searching for the solutions? Do you keep getting feedback from your environment and applying it? So. Man, I'm kind of all over the place here, but I just love the process so much. So it's about 10 days for our operators. Okay. And at the end of it, we have a pretty, I mean, we have a high success rate. Our you washout do. rate on OTC is really, um, let's just say the success rate is in the 90 percentiles um, every year. Yep. And some of that's because we're, we're bringing up good dudes already. Uh, so that selection piece is a little bit easier than it is for other folks who are just bringing people from different career fields that don't, you know, don't have any special operations background. Uh, but it's also because we put value on these five attributes that really point to this guy has a chance to learn to solve problems really effectively because he's getting really good at the basics and he can do things on top of it, like we've already talked about. Yeah, yeah. So 10 days and then they move into training, obviously. Yep, so 10 days and then we send them back and then they PCS here and then we start OTC every summer. So, yeah. and then it's a, you know, it's almost a shotgun blast, like we always say, or the fire hose to the mouth, but... I think, you know, I think we as an organization have to start looking at our OTC process and is it designed to where it's helping guys solve problems? It goes back to what Preston always says and you guys always say, you know, you train guys for certainty. Are we educating them enough to solve those problems that we don't know are problems yet? And that's where I think we can continue to grow as 
organizations across the MCT community is how yeah, much are we sure. adapting to what we don't know is coming? For sure, for sure. I think mental toughness in the general conversation in the kind of like cultural popular zeitgeist and other places, and a lot of it comes, people really rely on our communities and a lot of different talking heads that come out of special operations to define mental toughness. And I think it's a loaded term, frankly. I think most of the time what happens is, this is how I thought about it when I was younger, when folks are coming into special operations in the basic level, and I think we carry this through our careers dangerously a little bit, and it's been difficult. However, over the last decade, many OTCs and selections and green teams have, you already talked about, Ben, your sports psych, and we've done a better job of widening the aperture in mental toughness, but this is Coleman's perception. In our early days when we were younger, we tend to attach mental toughness to as simply an extension of our physical toughness. If I'm tough as hell and I can just do that, if I can go harder for longer with more intensity, then I get stamped as mentally tough, right? And so you've talked about this with some of your other guys and some other podcasts you've been on in terms of people struggle they're, they're, or, or they're not mentally tough if they struggle to get over a perceived failure. And I just wanted you to have a chance to talk about what you still see now in 2020, Trey, that comes in maybe to selection, probably not as much in OTC, where mental toughness of that perceived failure is still an issue for some guys trying to get up to the tier one units. Yeah. So, man, I love this question. And it's, it's never easy to answer because it's so different for each person. Um, I'm going to tie something in OTC into this conversation, though. So what we try to teach the guys, so we run a peak performance course at the start of OTC. Um, and that is taking all our operators into a course that where we teach them what we learned about them in selection. We have them do some personality profiles to where they learn more about themselves. And then we try to build a bridge for them over to our human performance staff to where they want to use them so they can get linked in with Ben and our op psychs and our strength coaches and everybody else. But back to your question, what we know, and I've got a list of variables that I throw up on a slide on day, like hour one of peak performance. It says, these are the variables that you have control over. And if you can yeah. control these, the bandwidth or the serial processing that um, Huberman was talking about, like you get some of that bandwidth back to solve problems. So here's the list that we read to them. It's kind of long. I apologize. No, go for it. So I tell them, you control your learning, your driving initiative, your mindset, your mental performance, your physical readiness, your nutrition, your competence, your relationships, your ability to give and receive critical feedback, your self-awareness, your ability to solve problems, your priorities of work, your emotions, your attitude, and your work ethic. Now, I use that kind of as the bridge over to our human performance group to say these guys can help you control a lot of those variables. Because if those variables are mixing in the background of whatever you're doing, whether it's selection or whether it's on target, man, they're going to anchor you or tether you to something that's not helping you at the time. Hmm. So what I know is in a selection guy, all I've got to do is tweak one or two of those inside the process. And I'm going to create some mental doubt in you. Like hmm. they don't know we're doing it, but it's, it's easy. Like as long as, long as you, um, recognize the variables as a guy running it. I can tweak their nutrition. I can treat how much sleep they have. I can take them down into a dark funnel. That's what we're looking for because, again, these guys are brave wearers. They already have a lot of talent. It's hard to get these guys to certain levels. But the mental 
struggles that these guys deal with that a lot of guys coming in the inception points like buds and everything else is or the battle or i'm sorry the special warfare yep. pipeline in the air force is uh they don't have a lot of the baggage that our guys have they don't have prior deployments that they may be struggling with some of that residue they have families now who are they're saying you know if that why isn't strong enough and they're on that long movement or they're just getting crushed their brain instantly can go to I don't know, man. I don't know if this is going to be right for my yeah. family. They start convincing themselves. Now all the things that didn't matter when they got there start mattering. Like, I hear these guys have a big ops tempo. They're gone a lot. So all these things just start creeping in on them. And that's that's all we're trying to do is just tweak enough of them to see who can mentally pull themselves back out. Because, you know, um, when we were getting crushed during post 9-11 um, in both wars, those things, you had those things with you every day, and it didn't stop you going on four or five targets a night. Yeah. But those variables are what were in the background, dragging me down mentally. So I think, long-winded answer to say, I think that our guys that are coming through our process, they're at a different time in their life than most of the guys coming through the inception points. So we look at it a little bit differently, but we also, Coleman, look at it if it's just one or two things that our human performance staff can help them sort out when they get there, we'll take a little bit of risk on them. Yeah. Um, we'll take a little bit of risk. We can fix some of that. So that's just the beauty, beauty of the process of what can we fix? What is going to overwhelm our human performance staff to where it might become a, a boon on them versus, you know, something that we can get them through during OTC. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a different, you're educating for uncertainty. That's what you're talking about. Absolutely. Right? Like, Every one of those categories you talked about, learning, drive, mindset, physical preparation, nutrition, feedback, awareness, you name it, keep going. Those all will always have a level of uncertainty. And, 100%. And that's okay. I think you hit, you hit it right on the head. And what I was trying to get to here was that mental toughness it is, was so narrowly defined and narrowly educated around 20 years ago. That if somebody, any listener, you know, what picked up one thing from today, in my view, whether you're in business, athletics, you know, tactical athlete, not, it doesn't matter, is a person, a team, an operator's mental toughness, the ecosystem of our mental toughness is more than does that do run marathons on the weekend? 100%. That's not mental toughness. I'll give you an example from our last selection. I won't say the guy's name, but I, I loved when he came through. He's an ultra runner, just a beast. And at the end, we ask, you know, the guys fill out um, 360s on each other. And then I ask them 10 questions about the process because it helps me um, understand what they're going through. And I was expecting him to say, ah, wasn't that hard. Like I do harder things than this on the weekends. It was a 10 across the board, like one through 10, 10 being the hardest. He rated everything a 10. He's like, this was harder than anything I've ever done because of what it did to me mentally. And that's, and I don't take pride in the, I'm just crushing dudes mentally. I take pride in the fact that if, if we control the variables correctly inside that process, we can let the guys have an experience to hopefully understand that I need some help with this when I get here. And they'll reach over to the human performance staff or the POTUS staff and start getting some of that help because we had to do it ourselves, Coleman, and I'm not, I hate those people that say, ah, we didn't have it as good as these guys. But all those variables, we had those same variables. We just didn't have anybody we could reach across the aisle to in our organizations to say, you know, how can I sort this out? Uh, my nutrition's probably bringing me down on a daily basis, dietitian. So what can I do to, to get better? Just to use an example. Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, I don't, I think we had it great, frankly. I mean, all the resources we had were amazing. We just, 
we're in a certain evolution as all our communities are, where the best way to be successful was be tactically competent and you could go harder for longer with more intensity yeah. than the guy next to you and you were good. Yeah, 100%. And what, what we're learning, I, and I love y'all's residue line of effort here, because for me, I get to touch the guys early. So I, I stood up at the last conference and say, from, from my perspective, this is enlightening because I'm the guy who can get at the guys before a lot of that residue starts building up. We can teach them how to deal with that as we go through. And our the guys running our POTUS staff, our main psych, he has got all these touch points through the operator's timeline at the units now to where he gets the right people involved in their lives um, to where they can help deal with that post-deployment, post all these other places um, or transitioning out of the organization. We've got all these touch points now to where we just mass the experts around them and just try to get them what they need to, to help process all that. Yeah. That's cool. I wanted to ask you this as well, Trey. I mean, uh, again, I think the joke with our, our team cast now is that on every one I say it's going to be 45 minutes. And it never <laughs> but there's a couple other things I want to I wanted to actually get to that topic. And because you brought up residue, forget OTC for a second. Just like just yourself, Trey, you've been at this for a long time. I know you stay you're obviously still in the community, but as a civilian, how has your transition out and retirement out and stay and how has all that been for you? Yeah, I listen to you talk about this a lot on here and it makes me ponder it. That's why I love these podcasts because you, I relate to you a lot because of the transition talks. And when you stay inside the community, it adds, a, it's a weird layer, right? Because yeah. I'm still plugged in, but I'm not plugged in and I still go home and I'm on a time card now. It's just weird. I, I harbored a lot of it. I didn't really recognize some things that I was carrying. I went and walked the Appalachian Trail the whole thing a few years back, and I left a lot of things on top of Mount Katahdin, which was the, the final summit. Like I had a conversation there, and all the baggage I was carrying, I offloaded a lot of it there. Um, very healing experience. And I've been a lot, and I try to get too mystical here, but I've been a, a lot more clear-minded since then. But I didn't recognize a lot of these things. And this residual talk that y'all had in the paper, I just read it again the other day, uh, helps me process some of those things um, that I wasn't able to let go of. Most of them are positive. But, you know, we lived through some rough times. And to say, you know, we didn't have the transition piece back then. When you got out, it was, hey, go on base and here's a couple of speakers, which were, which was good. But now it's kind of we're focusing it on guys who did what they did at our organization and uh, make sure that they have what they need going forward as as we lose them and they transition out into their world. I know that didn't answer it, but I still no, struggle with the experience, to be honest with you, because I keep going back to the compound every day, metaphorically yeah. now, because I'm working from home most days. But. Yeah, yeah. But I, I also had this on the list, Trey, so let's keep pulling this thread. Not necessarily, you know, the residue thread, but you can reflect on it however much you want. I did want... A lot of folks listen to the team cast because of people like you. And it's why we have people like you and Sean Holes and Andrew Huberman on. Just talk quickly, Trey, about the decision to go hike the Appalachian Trail. I think you threw hiked end to end, correct? I did, yeah. 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 The decision to do it, the experience when you were on it, the highs and lows, points of being on it. It's just a fascinating thing, as you know, to a lot of our community. I've never through hiked the whole Appalachian Trail. I mean, that's an intense endeavor. Yeah, when you were talking to Sean Holes on last team cast about, hey, if you want to get physically ready, throw in a, a backpack and go walk the Appalachian Trail yeah. for three days, could not agree. I was jumping up and down saying, if you want to <laughs> test yourself, you just go do three days. Um, if you want to really find out who you are as a human being and, and bring all the demons out, go through hike the whole thing. And that's what I did. So 
couple of things drove me to do it. A, I grew up near the Southern Terminus down in Georgia. So mm. I grew up with those white blazes kind of sitting in front of me. We used to have our okay. family reunions at Amaclola Falls. So I knew about it. But then as, as all of our POTIF assets started filling in and I got to be really close with them, they started giving me some tools that I didn't have earlier in life. I'm like, mm. I wonder with these tools, how can I apply that in a, a mentally challenging situation and what will this do? Because if I can figure that out, then I can come preach their goodness to the operators as they're going through OTC a little bit better. I can tie that in more succinctly with my verbiage. That was another reason. And then the last reason was, again, those demons were there. I've been struggling with my ego for years. That's what my new book's about. And I just wanted to, it was an arena. It's like me and you, buddy, right now, let's go do it. I thought with these new tools, I was going to be able to just go out there and crush it. Lord, how mercy was I wrong. My demons how, came how out. Wrong? Oh, I was vlogging it. So I'm on YouTube. I've vlogged I all 113 days of it. When those comments started coming in about people were valuing it, there comes the ego, right? That that was the door. The ego just came right yeah. back in and established itself. Did and I, I get did. the likes? Did I get the likes? Yeah, did exactly. I, get the likes? I was. I, I said it in the book, man. I'm opening my phone every 20 minutes because the dings are going off. I'm like, yeah, comments. Let's go read how good I'm doing again. It was ridiculous. But the beautiful thing about it, it brought that side out into the spotlight to where I have now been able to apply some tools and uh, kind of just suppress it or at least recognize it when it's rearing its head and try to be more present and a better version of myself. You know, the Appalachian Trail is different than like the PCT or the CDT where they are just amassed in views the whole time. Appalachian wow. Trail, you're in the forest. I, I did it mostly in the winter though. I started in February, ended in June, but you have to earn every view that you get. The views are mm -hmm. amazing, but it is a butt kick to get to those views. So <laughs> those were the highs and the lows, but you get up to the Northeast, your body's already broken down. You're about 1,800 miles into it. You you get the White Mountains at that point in time, and it's yep. just crushing you. Uh, then you get into Maine. Like, I'm at the last state, man. I'm almost done. No, it's the second longest state on the Appalachian Trail, and it is the hardest state. So by the end of it, Coleman, it it had lost a lot of its magic and its grandeur, and I was in survival mode, which is really? We're, we're really good at that, though, in our in our soft world. So I could trudge through it. But climbing that last mountain and getting on top of Katahdin, uh, I haven't cried in a long time, but man, I broke down like a baby at that sign because I realized Amazing. I can conquer some of those demons and I realized I had a path forward um, to being better and more mentally healthy, I think, as I left. Were you alone at the finish, sure? Yeah, I, I did. I'm an introvert, man, so I, I did most of it alone. But people are like, well, why do you vlog then? Like, I think that's my tie-in. That's the human interaction yeah. that I would get to keep me. Because you got to have it. It doesn't matter what you are. Absolutely. you got to have that connection. So that was my connection. The beautiful thing, I could control that connection, though, Coleman. Like, I could turn it on when I wanted, and I could turn yeah. it off when I wanted. So um, I was alone most of the time. And I was way ahead of almost everybody. I was only the 12th person to summit Katahdin that year. Um, wow. But going that early, also, I had a lot of deep snow in the white. So, again, suffered immeasurably because of my decision to get up there too early. Did you come off the trail to sleep in any towns at all, or did you sleep yeah. every night? You yeah, did. so I think that's the thing most people don't know about through hikes. You're having to hit yeah. a town about every four or five days to get food and resupply, but you're staying mostly, for me, mostly in hostels, which yeah. just, you know, a place where multiple people stay. You're usually in some kind of bunkhouse. So kind of got some camaraderie building there with a few people that were around me on the trail. 
some of the towns are just fabulous. Some of that was the best experience. You go into these towns, they love hikers. And, uh, <laughs> I had people that were watching me on the video and they would come out and seek me on the trail and bring me um, what we call trail magic goodies. Yep. Cherry Cokes were my my vice out there nice. at the time. I hadn't drunk a soda in like five years, got out there and just turned into a soda addict again. But the community that surrounds that trail specifically, the most magical experience I've had in years. Yeah, that's incredible. Did you think about quitting at all? Absolutely. And it, it always, this is, this is why I think I'm such a good selection maestro, if you will, because <laughs> the same things that got me mentally drained on there, I know we're going to get our guys drained when they're here. And it ties back to the guys who have families. Um, man, that family model comes back up in their head a lot. My wife came and visited me twice. Both times when she left, I was watching her drive south and I was walking north. I'm like, what are you doing? This is all voluntary. Yeah. What are you doing? And I was all I could do not to call her on the phone. Here's what I learned out of the, like, this is the biggest lesson for anybody who's listening is Andrew, you and Andrew talked about this so well, but let me tie it to something like the App Appalachian Trail. When tough times are hitting, when you are mentally, you know, just drained and you can't keep, maybe you think you're about to quit, just keep walking forward. Just keep move forward movement. And it will all right itself. The ship will come back on course and you'll be okay. It's the ones who don't do that and decide to quit. Um, they're the ones who the, the answer is right in front of them. And it was called forward movement. Just keep taking the next step. And that's, that's the hint I'll give anybody who's about, if they're listening to this and about to enter a pipeline, man, just keep taking the next step and it will all work itself out. Would you tell your buddies on One's Ready Traffic, you said quitting is a decision? Not yeah. a mindset? Yeah. Or so it is a mindset? It's a mindset. It's not a decision. You didn't yeah. just wake up and say, all right, you know what? I'm, today I'm going to quit. No, right. it had been something brewing inside you for a long time. And if you can recognize that early, we can change the outcome. Yeah. Quitting is a mindset, not a decision. There's some very close buddies of mine who are not, not in soft, never been in soft. And we do a little here and there on the, on the AT because we're close enough to get there. And they've chatted about, you know, through hiking at some point in their lives, they're fully physically capable. There's no question. It even intimidates me, frankly, Trey, thinking about it. All the things we've done in our lives, dude, yeah. man, putting 113 days on my legs yep. straight. <laughs> and I put it in the book. I have, you take everything that I've done up into my life combined, and that trail was twice as hard as all that combined. Like, it, Is that right? You, but you know why? Because you're controlling the experience. You're controlling how hard you push yourself every day. Yep. I had a family to get back to. So I kept feeling, man, I got to get there. I got to get there and get back to my family. So that I was doing 25 miles a day over mountains, <laughs> crushing myself. But it's also something we enjoy. I enjoy crushing myself and seeing what yeah. I can do. Um, that's what a lot of the viewers didn't understand. Like, why are you moving so fast? Smell the roses. Yeah. Man, this is what I just live to do. I want to push myself so to the <laughs> middle place to where I have to start making decisions and suppressing demons. And it's easy to get to out there. Um, last question on the AT, Trey, because you said it at the beginning. Part of your decision to do it was some of these tools that you learned from your people. What tools failed you out there that you thought were going to work better? So I think a better question for me is what tools did you give up on very early? And it's okay. things like it's things like waking up and meditating or waking up and doing some deep breathing, waking up and just doing some, you know, I took a rolling stick actually. So people don't know what that mm -hmm. is or a massage stick. I took it, you know, that's a weight penalty. Most people won't carry, but I took it because I know the guys taught me that came Potiff. I wasn't rolling my legs out before Potiff showed up. Right. Like I knew, I thought I knew what I was doing. I wasn't recovering. I think that's most operators back in the day. We never recovered. We just went harder. Yeah. 
So I took the recovery stick out there and I was using it. So I did pretty good with that the whole time. But other things to get myself mentally back on or get the levels bubbled every day mentally, I let the, go of those pretty early. Really? I think, yeah, I think because, you know, you're hiking 12 hours a day. So you're like, man, I'll just balance it out as I'm walking. But you don't. You are constantly thinking. This is what's so weird that you don't know until you experience it. When you walk 12 hours a day, um, shutting your mind down is almost impossible. So what I should, <laughs> going back, I'm going to do the AT again, hopefully in a year or two. I'm gonna take, yeah, I'm going to take more tools out there. And I'm going like, that's something I need to do every day is to sit in meditation, do some gratitude work. And I know to some people that sounds mystical, but to me, it's just been a huge life changer of being able to get some clarity in my thoughts. Like I meditated before I came on here. I'm not going to lie mm -hmm. to you because it just opens up a, it reduces the stress, but it opens up some what I think are those neural pathways to um, allow you to just perform better and yeah. suppress some of these demons that were coming up. That's that's unbelievable. I look forward to doing it myself. I don't know if I'm ever going to get to it. It's something I've thought about for years, and I'm serious, Trey. I'm not surprised to hear you say, well, I'm a little bit surprised to hear you say how hard it was, twice as hard as anything we've ever done, but... If you just go out, like Sean and I were discussing, there's a couple of young guys here. They're in the teams now. They grew up in Maryland. They played lacrosse. I spent a lot of time with them before they went through training. And I love lifting weights. I love doing all kinds of stuff. But I was serious. I told those young guys when they were training, I'm like, look, if you want to get your head and your body ready, put on a backpack and go walk for three or four straight days on the AT, you're not going to like it. Yeah, like, no. It's miserable. I tell everybody I'm still big in the, I'm still involved, I should say, in the hiker community. And a lot of people just, they are, they're always asking, hey, what can I do to prepare? Just put on your backpack, walk. go out there, walk in the rain. Like you have to, you have to learn to endure suffering and not yeah. retreat back to your house. You have to be able to endure it, stay out there, get up and endure it again. And unless you can, uh, your bad, bad little devil inside your brain is going to talk you out of that really quickly and you'll come off yeah. really quickly. Yeah, it's crazy. So a couple of just things to drive it to the finish line here, Trey. Given all the performance stuff, given where your community has gone with training, your peak performance program, the things you're exposed to still on a daily basis, is there anything you're doing for yourself on a daily, weekly, or monthly tempo that you haven't already mentioned that you have found particularly valuable? Yes. So it goes back to the third thing, right? I've just like you said, my third thing was exercise. What a horrible third thing. Like that's in my daily <laughs> routine anyway. I'm going to do that regardless, right? So that really right. isn't a third thing. So I went through the same transition, Coleman. A, I do have a, a like a habit. Let's just say my daily battle rhythm has been the same for a long time. And it's get yep. up very early. I'm going to meditate. I'm going to read something that's going to make me smarter. Um, I'm going to go work out. I got to get all that in. I got to get that done. I feel like to get my day to where I can be the best version of me for the rest of the day. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes that doesn't. But writing has become my new third thing. Mm. Uh, just being able to get those experiences out. All really, paper. it's cathartic for me, but I think there's some folks who are struggling with some things that they can't define yet. They don't have the, at least the knowledge to understand. They have the experience, but they don't have the knowledge to define it. Like you and Preston always say, we need a common language. Yeah. So the book that I just published is about the ego and it's just me revealing that those. What's the title? It's time to choose your ego or you. And then the subtitles revealing humanity's uh, biggest secret. 
okay. the biggest secret just being that we are all controlled by our egos in a, just immense ways every day. So yeah. I just try to give some examples in the book from my life of how I didn't see it, what it was doing. Now, looking back, I can reflect and see, wow, there were some uh, inception points of that ego getting involved in my behavior. <laughs> um, and I, if I had the awareness, I could have changed some outcomes in my life. So really, it's just writing. I'm about to start on my second book. And, you know, they say you are what you tell yourself you are. So I'm telling myself I'm an author. I'm just going to keep typing on the keyboard and, and see going, where it baby. goes. How hard was it, Trey, to get the swirling of thoughts? And I want to add a metric here before you answer. The swirling of thoughts down on a piece of paper. Because I was so curious about this myself, Trey just in keeping my own journals and whatever. I went and looked up because sometimes I think, and I think I'm, we're all probably right to some extent. I just think I'm a crazy person with the pace of how fast my mind runs, right? So I went and looked up how fast in words per minute does the mind think? Yeah. So plus or minus 3000 words a minute. And then we talk and process like a public speaker, mind your talking pace is very similar. It's, 150 to 180 words per minute. And then we type or write somewhere from 40 to 90. 90 is really fast to type, right? Somewhere at 40 to 90 words a minute. And so I'm always curious for folks who like to write, whether it's journal, books, or whatever, how difficult have you found it to go from 3,000 words a minute running in your brain to call it 50 words per minute on the paper. Yeah, I'm so non-conventional too. So people, if they saw me, how I'm writing, some people probably read him like, yeah, I can tell, but I didn't outline anything. <laughs> I just start typing, man. And I'm like, okay, I'll go down this line for a while. And then I get sidetracked and I start, my poor wife is the one who edited it. So oh my goodness. like, you should probably ask her that question because I have a Georgia education. I'm always self-deprecating. So I have a Georgia yeah. education and it comes through in my writing. Well, I so grew up she, in Louisiana, so. Yeah, so she did very well in editing. But back to your original question, I think it was tough, but it was so fun. And I'm I'm a guy who, if I orient myself towards something, I'm going to get it done. So yeah. it wasn't a surprise that I finished the book. But reading, like, my first hard copy came yesterday in the mail. And I'm sitting there holding this book that I wrote, which just blew me away. I'm like, oh, my God, it's finally real. And I started reading it, and it doesn't feel like they were my words. It's feel like I'm reading really? some words from somebody else, and they're decent. Like most of them are pretty good. I'm really impressed. Maybe I should give more credit to my wife, but it's a fun process. And a guy like you, and I'll, I'll tie this in another way, Coleman. I think a guy like you should write a book because I think there's a lot of guys who are coming up in the same path that you came up, who are dealing with things, but they can't see outside the fishbowl. And Coleman can see outside the fishbowl now. And that's why I keep, I told you on the email a while back of, that's why I wish all of our commands would get these gray beards back who can now see outside the fishbowl and they can start becoming that bridge in between the operators and those people who can really help the operators get yeah. better and, and, you know, reduce some of these things. So again, long answer, but I think it's important and I think you should write a book. No, that's great. I love it. Are you going to, can you divulge the theme of what's coming next or you want to keep it? I don't know. Like I'm right in the, this is, this is what's weird is I'm reading, I'm reading Jonathan Haidt's The Happiness Hypothesis right now. Yeah. Have you ever read that book? Like that, I haven't read it, but I follow Jonathan Haidt. Oh, it is such a good book. It's older. I think it's 2011, but it's blowing my mind right now. And it's kind of really? pointing me in the, the path that I want to go. So hopefully get writing here. We got a selection coming up in a couple of weeks after that. I'll probably at least start typing. Okay, I'm going to look up 
Hyde book. I know he wrote recently the what, The Coddling of the American Mind? Yep, he did. This one is the one, Coleman, where he's talking about um, the elephant and the rider. And that's yeah. how he's describing System 1 and System 2, right? Um, mm-hmm. That the rider is always trying to guide the elephant around, but that System 1 elephant, he is going to do what he wants to most days. So it's learning how to train the elephant to get him to do what we need him to do. So it's a it's an awesome book. Hmm. That's good. I'll pick it up. So if you were telling the community, not the general listener, I mean the general listener too, but the Mission Critical Teams community, you know, this is what Trey Free thinks you should do on Monday with your team and yourself. I'm always going to come back to the same thing because it's what led me out of the uh, the darkness and into the light, I think. And it is become curious about every single thing that is around you. All the processes that you think you have hunkered down and that you're doing it right, you've got to start asking questions and seeking out opposing views. Some people are really naturally good at this and then some people never do this. And I, I tell everybody I come in contact with, if you can just remain curious um, you're going to find better pathways to answers and, and push whatever you're trying to push forward. For us, it's the organization. And like when we bring guys in, operators in to be selection cadre members, the first thing we tell them to do is, man, you just got to come in and be curious. Some things, you're going to see some actions that are going to send you right back down one of your ravines and you're going to think, oh, I've got this guy figured out. We're losing when we do that. You got to be curious and ask yourself why. Go up to him and ask a question of why he just did what he did. And I guarantee his answer will probably change your perception of what happened. So I just keep pushing, man. If we're curious, we're winning. And when we we get really settled into how we're solving problems, we're probably not solving problems the way we think we are. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great point. Books, essays, videos, documentaries, Trey, what, what do you really like? Recently. Yeah, go on and watch Early Riser 7 1. That's me on YouTube. If yes, you want Early some humor, Riser 7 1. Yeah, if you want some humor, most days I'm struggling, or I, I, I have diarrhea of the mouth on there too. So a lot of them are long. <laughs> so just bear with it, but it's entertaining. Jonathan Hyde is my new, like I'm really um, involved in him. I watch a lot of YouTube videos with him, but I just, yep. I, I read books that push push me into thinking a new way. And most of it revolves around not just happiness but how to find, how to create an environment to where we can be more happy. And you and Huberman talked about this a lot, so I really like it. I'm a Simon Sinek fan. I think his last book, The Infinite Game, was mm. really a game changer for me as well. I heard of, that. I'm not a huge fan of him, but I heard that people really liked it. It was good in the the way that he gets you to look beyond um, your current context. And I'm, I always need people to do that. I'm yeah. not really a settler, but I really... In my book, I talk about David Epstein's book, The Second Mountain, which I also yeah. recommend. But that's David all, Brooks. Oh, I'm sorry, David Brooks. Yep. Yeah. So we often yeah. we often stop on our first mountain, and that's the mountain where we just kind of we got our new car, like all those yeah. things that we see as successful on Instagram. <laughs> he pushes us to like we need to push towards passions at some point in our life. Uh, some people don't like that word, so however you want to frame it, but uh, yeah. leave that first mountain, go down into another arena that's going to challenge you and start climbing the second mountain, whereas you're doing good for more than just yourself and your family. You're trying to make a difference. And I yeah. point to, even though what y'all have is a business model, what you and Preston are doing, it's kind of, y'all are, to me, moving up your second mountain. And it's kind of a signpost for me of those guys transitioning or moving out on a, a you know, an azimuth. Um, what can I do to help a community out? Before we get off here too, I just want to give you two a shout out because you, what y'all are doing, Preston didn't have to do this research. Yeah. He didn't. He could have chose any path, but the 
the reason and the fact that he chose to do it. We're on here discussing some amazing things. Um, and you joining in with him and these podcasts have been absolutely mind blowing for me. So I'm humbled to be on here with people who have you, you have interviewed before. I was nervous as crap before because <laughs> Get out man, how do you come on here with Dan Cole being on here a few weeks ago? You know yeah, what I mean? How great. do you follow? He is the man. Like if you yeah. haven't read his books, you're already behind in my opinion. Yeah, exactly. No, thanks for that, Trey. I, this is the power of the community is I'm nervous every time I bring on a guest and most of the guests are my friends. You know, but it's yeah, man, it's I really uh, it's just so humbling to have these conversations. So we appreciate it for sure. It was so for the audience. Early riser seven one is Trey's feed on YouTube when he hiked the Appalachian Trail. He's got a book out. I'll put it in the show notes. A couple of his recommendations have been to read the Happiness Hypothesis by Jonathan Haidt and Simon Sinek's book The Infinite Game. And if anybody wants or needs to connect with Trey, we can make a connection to him. If there's something, you know, obviously we don't hand out people's emails, but if there's something that Trey said that is really useful to you, part of the MCT community is intended to do exactly that, is link people up with the right people, which we've done a couple times now with other guests and stuff, you know, so we can make that connection. Of course, the plug for you, Trey, is if you, Preston's already mentioned it, if your second mountain is you need a job. There's a, there's a seat at MCTI <laughs> always for Trey Free. There's no question. That's refreshing and scary all at the same time. Yeah, exactly. But no, thanks for doing this, Trey. It was awesome, awesome to have this conversation with you. Any follow-ups or anything we didn't we didn't talk about? Well, let me just say, I think that the community that you guys have built are going to solve problems that we can't see yet. So that's why I just keep pushing this community to be curious and keep tying back in, listen to these podcasts and let's solve some problems before they're problems. Because just like the problem y'all are solving with residue, like we didn't yeah. see that when we started this, we weren't talking residue. Now no you guys are pushing the thought forward and you're already pushing down to the units. Like we're solving this problem because y'all brought it up. So keep it up, man. Uh, we need y'all. Oh, that's good. It was great to have you on here. Great. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, man. Take care.